We have been going through the book of Matthew for like ever, okay? I'm pretty sure they wrote the book of Matthew quicker than we have actually gone through it. And so we are like almost two years into this thing. We jump in and out of Matthew, and that's where we're going to be today. But here's one of the things that I have found most interesting, because this is the first time as a pastor. I've been a pastor for 14 years. Oh my gosh, a long time, okay? Uh, Some of you guys were like barely born at that point. Uh, I have been a pastor for a long time, and I have never just gone through a book of the Bible for years at a time. And here's what I've learned so far, is that the person of Jesus is a very controversial person because he does not just allow you to like him. He really challenges you. He's a fascinating dude for sure, but he's also intense and he's a bit offensive at times. And so I've been talking to you guys as we've been going through it and kind of getting your feedback. Like, what do you think about this? They're like, dude, it's, it's intense stuff. I'm like, I know Jesus is an intense dude. And so as we go through and we learn about Jesus and we're, we're, uh, we're, we're reading the very words that he spoke, I think two things happen, is we are comforted by a lot of things that he says, and then we are confronted by a lot of things that he says. Because he has some teachings that are revolutionary. They are a game changer. And so some people will find them comforting, other people will find them confronting, and oftentimes we will find them both. Okay, so here's where we're going to be. Matthew 12, verse 22 is where we are at. Um, this is where we left off. We finished in verse 21 a few weeks ago. We are back, and we are in verse 22. If you've got your Bibles, Bible apps, open it up. Matthew 12, 22. It's going to be on the back third of your Bibles if you have a Bible. It's going to be on your Bible app if you have, okay, here we go. All right, Matthew 12, 22. Here's what it says. And this is why I asked you guys the scary movie question. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. Okay, now already we're confronted with something that is totally countercultural to the culture that we live in, which is the supernatural. And I will be honest, because of the place that I have grown up in here in the West, and we're, a very, uh, we're becoming more secular, and the supernatural is something that maybe we believe, maybe we don't, um, we are already confronted with the claim that the supernatural exists, that there is a realm outside of the physical world, and um, supernatural things happen, and not only do supernatural things happen, but there is such thing as supernatural evil. Now, this is why I asked you guys about the scary movie question, is because sometimes when we watch these scary movies, um, we are confronted with the possibility that there is a evil out there that is outside of just some crazy psycho guy, but there's a supernatural evil. Now, I found this really interesting is I heard recently, and this would make sense uh, of why Exorcism of Emily Rose and other movies were made by Christians, is there has been a lot of Christians who have come into the film industry and have specifically focused on uh, the horror genre because they want to shake us who are in the Western world out of our apathy and disbelief in the supernatural. And do you feel that a little bit when you watch a scary movie and something crazy happens, you kind of cringe a little bit and go, dude, even if you're skeptical of the supernatural, when there is some sort of evil that's portrayed on screen, like when that girl comes out of the TV for the first time, you went, oh crap, right? You, even if you're a hardcore secularist, atheist, you're like, there's no way. When she does it, you go, ah, right? Because there is something intuitive to us. I scared you just when I did that, just now. Some of you guys are like, oh, I just, oh. There's something that we know that evil exists and it's not just bad decisions or bad things that people do, that there is this realm and there can be supernatural evil. And so right here we see Jesus and he is, uh, he is um, he's ha- there's an exorcism happening and he is going to heal this demon-possessed man. Now, let me back up a little bit because in our 
context, this is not how evil manifests itself. So if you went to Africa, for example, the spiritual realm is very much real to them. When they think about life, they don't think of, okay, the physical world is what is really here, and then maybe there's the spiritual world. They see both realms as real, as like objectively real and there, because they're confronted with supernatural things all the time. They have witchcraft, and so you can go, and there's people doing voodoo and doing crazy stuff, and then there's also Islam, and then there's Christianity, and so the spiritual world to them is right in front of their face. But that's not the world that we live in. The world that we live in, evil, is manifested in a very different way. And if you read the book, uh, Screwtape Letters, by C.S. Lewis, and I've referenced it lately, and so if you haven't read it, you need to, is the way in which evil is uh, portrayed in that book is very much covert. In fact, it's not something that is freaky, but something that is enjoyable. And there's a, in the letter of Screwtape Letters, you have these two demons. You have the, uh, I think it's like the senior demon and then the, uh, the, like the training demon. I can't remember the terminology it uses, but they're corresponding back and forth, trying to say how they're going to, uh, how they're going to lure someone away from Christ and into hell. And it's fascinating because C.S. Lewis makes up these dialogues. And one of the ways in which they will lure the patient away, the uh, senior demon and lower demon, is through these very covert things. One of which is, we'll make this thing, this evil, so enjoyable that it's difficult to resist. And so when we think about evil, we think about supernatural evil, but that's not all that there is. There's also this very enjoyable evil. So let me give you one practical example. Pornography. I think pornography is something that is incredibly evil. Because it literally changes our brains, our brain chemistry. It makes us think differently, feel differently, and therefore our relationships are now different. It's destroying marriages. It's destroying potential for future connection. And so it is something that is evil. We can actually see that it is destroying people. And yet at the same time, millions of people would say, but it's also very enjoyable. And so when we think about evil, don't just think supernatural evil, like demon possession, like it's talking about here, but think about things that may be enjoyable, but are actually destroying us. Now, here's the other thing that we learned from here, is, uh, is that miracles are not just evidence of God's work, they are only evidence of the supernatural. What I mean by this is, when we think about miracles happening, we think God must be at work, but that's not the assumption that's made here. The assumption that is made here is that miracles can happen, but there, is the there can be uh, two different powers that can make these miracles happen. There can be the power from God, and there can be power from the evil one. And we're going to see um, that miracle works are not necessarily going to be works of God. So here's what we'll continue on. And so it says, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. So Jesus goes and he heals this blind, mute man who is demon-possessed. And I think the underlying assumption here, and this is throughout the entire Gospels, is everybody is broken and they cannot fix themselves. So you're going to see that throughout the Bible. That's one of the major themes is you can't fix you. Your problem is bigger than any willpower, than any kind of self-help, than any kind of determination that what is wrong with you, whatever that, however it manifests itself in your life, whatever is wrong with you can't be fixed by you. There's only one person that can fix it. And what's great about this story is this person realized they can't fix themselves. What is broken in them cannot be fixed by them. So we live in a culture in which uh, our medicine is progressing, and that is an incredible thing. And I am thankful to God that we have that. But we have come under the assumption that as we progress, we can take care of ourselves. But no, 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 we're just really putting a band-aid on. We're putting a couple years maybe on our life, but we haven't fixed the ultimate problem of death and decay. 
And so the underlying theme here is that we can't fix ourselves. Someone has to fix us. And this guy realizes it is Jesus who can fix him. Verse 23, all the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? So uh, what they're trying to say there is there's going to be this promised Messiah, and they've been expecting this Messiah to come and to save them. And so they see Jesus working, and they think, maybe this is the guy that's supposed to save us. Maybe this is the, the guy who's been promised to us. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Okay, so remember how I said that miraculous things can happen, but it's not only God who causes miraculous things. Now, this is crazy to us because we are so not about the supernatural. At least me being kind of a skeptic, I go, I don't know about that. But here's what the scripture says. It says, just because something miraculous has happened does not mean that it's from God. The scripture tells us in other places that we are to test the spirits to know if it's from God or not. So we can see something crazy happen. We're like, what just took place right here? And we go, God must be at work. It's a stamp of approval. And the scripture says, da, 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 time out. God's not the only supernatural power at work here. We have to test the spirits. So what does that mean to test the spirits? Well, when the scripture says, says the spirit says things like, look to the scripture and see, does it match up with what the scripture says? So if it opposes what God is doing, what God has said in his scripture, it's not from him. Or we seek wise counsel. We go to other people and go, you know, I'm wrestling with something that I saw or that I heard or that I experienced. What do you think? You, you're a little bit further along this path than I am. So we seek wise counsel. We also pray. Uh, the scripture talks a lot about discernment. Is we're supposed to ask God, God, is this real or is this counterfeit? And we also look at the fruit. What is it producing in the world? Because all miracles will eventually, or, or directly, point back to God. Because the point of miracles is to bring glory to God, to be a signpost for people to look at him. But if it's to fill someone's pockets, or it's to bring glory to somebody else, it's not going to be from God. So when we think about miracles, we have to be able to realize that there is the true and that there's the counterfeit. So recently, I was being on uh, Craigslist. And um, we're looking for, for our family um, because kids are getting older and we want to go out and have a, uh, we have this place up that we can ride quads and stuff like that. So we've been looking to get some used quads as a family. And what's crazy is, and my dad's been on there a bunch too because he's looking for some, and, and there's all these ads and they are scams, like all over the place. In fact, uh, Matt called one the other day and like they, they actually have phone numbers, like these scams are pretty intense. And so we've been looking at all these ads and eventually you get to the place where you've spent so much time on Craigslist looking at these things that you can immediately spot the fake ones, right? There's like telltale times, like it says their phone number on the photo and things like that. And one of the ways that you can recognize the counterfeit is by being so familiar with the real. This is the same with money, right? This is, I guess I've, I've been told this is how FBI agents, things like that, are able to um, find counterfeit money is because they're so familiar with the real that when they see something that is other, they go, well, that's not, that's not it. So we are supposed to be people who are so uh, familiar with the real, with experiencing God's presence and knowing his scripture that when something comes along and we go, whoa, hold on, I know God, I know the scripture, I know what he says, and that doesn't seem to align with it. Or that seems to be a little bit off, or I'm not gonna fall for that because that seems like a counterfeit work. Okay, uh, continues on. Uh, oh, actually, I think there's one big point, and actually I want to uh, talk about this for a little bit. I love the response of the Pharisees because it gives us a principle that we can take away. So Jesus does this miraculous work. He heals this person. Everybody sees it, 
And yet their response is not to have more faith, but to have less faith. And so here's the learning that we can take away. And I'm going to give you a few of these tonight, but here's one big one. When God works in your life, it will never leave you the same. Now, we assume that it will change us for the good, that we will become more faithful, we have more trust in God, and we will follow him. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that it will either produce more faith in you or less faith in you, that it will draw you closer to God or push you further away when God works in your life. Now, you go, wait a minute, how is that possible? Because if God did something in my life, especially something miraculous or something unexpected, for sure I would have more trust. In fact, I pray for that all the time. God, do something crazy so I can have more faith. And yet the Bible says, no, no, no. It's definitely going to change you, but it may not be for the good. Now, let me give you a couple examples of how this works out. Is when we look at the Western world, and we'll take the United States, for example, uh, we live in probably, no, not probably, the greatest civilization in human history. We have more technology, we have more wealth, we have uh, more opportunities and more resources than any other civilization in human history. And some of the things that we believe make America great, not just again, but total, as a little, that's, yes, no, you guys don't watch news? All right. MAGA? No? All right. It's funny if you guys watch the news. Um, anyway, what makes... America, the best nation, and the Western world, the best civilization, is some founding principles that we had. And so we had founding principles like justice and mercy and human rights and freedom and all of those things we would say universally across the board, those are really good things. Those are the things that make us an incredible place to live. The problem is, is we don't realize where those things came from. Because where they came from was the Judeo-Christian beliefs. Those things are rooted in, originated, and find uh, their uh, stability in the Christian faith. So let me give you one for example. Uh, Equality. I hear people talking about equality all the time. Equality of genders and sexes and races. And we're always talking about equality. But what people don't realize is that the only reason why we believe as a nation in equality is because we believe in a God who believes in equality or has deemed us all as equals because we're made in his image. Because if you were born in India, for example, you would not see equality because you were born into a caste system in which the Hindu belief is the reason why you are a lower caste, the reason why you are in poverty is because you did something wrong in your past life and because of karma, now you are having to, uh, you're going to have to make up for what you've done. Or if you go to a place like Islam in in the Middle East where Islam is the dominant religion, they don't believe in equality. Men and women are not the same, nor are they going to be treated as equals. In fact, uh, secularism, the, probably the, the rising uh, belief in the West, there is no justification for human equality. It is survival of the fittest, and when you try to come up with some reason why humans should be seen as equal, it all falls apart. There's no basis for that in a secular worldview. All of it is founded on the Christian worldview. In fact, if you look at the Declaration of Independence, it says this. It says that all men are created equal, which we all go, yes, uh-huh, but you forget the next line. It's the reason why we believe they're created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with unalienable rights. Who is that creator that endows us with those? That's the Christian God. Nothing any other God, but the Christian God. And so here's what we do. We say, okay, we're going to believe in this God. He's going to bless us. We're going to take all the beliefs from this God. And then once we're fat and we're happy, we're going to say, we don't need that God anymore. 
We start to buy into our own publicity that we have it figured out, that we are self-sustaining, that we can be autonomous. And so we say, thanks for all that Christian belief and thanks for all the founding and the great ideas and God's blessings, but we're good now. We've got it all figured out. Do you see how that worked? God produced something miraculous, the birth of an incredible nation. And yet our response is not more faith in God, but less faith in God. We do this all the time. I, as a pastor, have seen this countless times. I see people come into the church, and oftentimes they'll come in because they're hurting. There's something not going right in their life. They've been, uh, they broke up with their boyfriend or girlfriend, and they're devastated, or they lost their job, but their health is not well, or whatever it may be. They come in, and they're hurting, and we embrace them, and we love them, and God starts to work in their life, and the community starts to help them get back on their feet, and then the craziest thing happens. They don't stand in the front and go, yay, Jesus, thank you for getting me my job, or thank you for this spouse, or thank you for the, I look at it, and I go, where'd they go? They're gone now. There's no one in the front row anymore. What happened? They got healed, right? They found that boyfriend or girlfriend. They got that job. And so now once they get what they came for, they're out. And so God's faithfulness did not produce more faith in them, but less because they started to believe it's because of me, right? Because I'm so smart, because I'm so good looking, because I've got it all figured out. That church thing, oh yeah, that was nice for a little bit, but luckily I figured it all out. See, this weird, weird miraculous thing that God does in our life doesn't produce more, but less faith. Oftentimes. So let's go to verse 25. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, which by the way, you should just pause and just trip out a little bit for a second there. Jesus knew their thoughts. Jesus knows your thoughts. Oh, I feel like we all should just repent right now. Lord, I'm sorry. On the way here, I thought some things, right? This is why, maybe, this is, just, this is just out of my book, okay? This is out of uh, Cody's gospel, is sometimes I think that we assume that we are good people because we see ourselves and other people um, the way that uh, we would view each other. So what I mean by this is you can't read my mind, I can't read your mind, but by your actions, you seem like you're a pretty good person because we figured out how to control ourselves for the most part, right? Like in my mind, um, things are happening, but my actions are not doing the same thing. So like when I drive, some of my, my darkest thoughts are when I'm driving. And I wish that I had some type of heavy machinery in which I could shoot rockets at other cars, right? And just blow them up. I don't care about their family or their future. I just want them to get out of the way, right? But I don't do that. And so I am perceived as a good person because I'm not blowing people up on the freeway and things like that. And so from your perspective, I'm a pretty, you know, I'm a good uh, upright standing citizen. I'm a good guy. But from God's perspective, he's going, dude, you've murdered like 12 people on the way here right now, right? So to you, good guy. To God, not so good. And so I think that's where this disconnect, and it's a good reminder, is like, God's not impressed by your good behavior. He sees what you're thinking, right? He knows the thoughts that are going through your mind. And that should just give, that, would, that should just freak us all out. Okay. Anyway. All right, next, uh, next part. Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. Okay, so here's what Jesus is saying. 
He's saying, how am I able to do these miraculous things if my power is from Satan and I'm working against Satan? And then he gives us this incredible principle for life, and it's something we all should take with us. A house divided cannot stand. Now, this seems to be true, obviously so, is if you look at, say, uh, an army. An army that has infighting will end up being defeated, either because they're going to end up destroying themselves internally or because they'll become so weak that the enemy will be able to come and destroy them. That a house that is not unified, that has disunity or division, will eventually be destroyed. And this is something that we have to realize is true of every arena of our life. And so when you think about your family, a family that is not unified in its vision and, uh, and relationally and staying together will be destroyed. So I don't know if you experienced this growing up, but one of the things that my parents would never do is disagree in front of me and my sister. Like they wouldn't disagree with each other. They may go back and have a very serious discussion about whatever the issue was, but they would be a united front, right? They would always be a united front in front of us because they said, look, we will be united and we will work on behind the scenes if there's any, but from your perspective, we will always be united because any kind of division can destroy the family. And this is true of your future marriages, or if you're married right now, this is true of your marriage, is you can agree to disagree and love each other in the process, but if you haven't reconciled that and there is disunity, there's division amongst you, that marriage will fail. It's true of your family, it's true of your companies. And in fact, I listened to, um, I listened to a podcast, and uh, it's a leadership podcast, and they talk about team unity. Team unity is one of the biggest things that is on the market right now because they understand that if you are going to be efficient and effective and have a long-term future, you have to be unified as a staff. And so I want to uh, take a minute, and I want to apply, because I think this principle is so important. We can apply this to different arenas of our life, but I think we should apply it to the church, because like, we're at church, we are the church. And, and this happens to be something that Jesus is really concerned about, is Jesus said that he died for, not just for me and you, he died for the church. That means believers, all of us coming together, worshiping. And so if Jesus died for the church, he seems to want to um, keep the church together. And if you don't know what the purpose of church is, let me just give you just a really quick vision statement from the Bible. The purpose of the church is to be God's instrument, his hands and feet in the world to bring hope and healing and restoration. And so like we're supposed to do God's work when he works through us into the world. So like we're it, we're the program that God is going to work through. And so he has huge um, goals for us. He has a huge vision for us. But I've also realized something else, is the thing that is going to sidetrack the church, this church and any other church, is going to be disunity and division. So think about any church, and maybe you're not familiar with churches or whatever, but you probably heard about churches, is if you think about a church that has been destroyed, it's not through persecution. It's almost, it's almost never through persecution, because when the enemy comes and persecutes the church, you know what the church usually does? It, it, it comes together, it digs its heels, and it says, no way, you can kill us, but we don't care. We're moving forward. You know how churches are almost always destroyed? Internally. Churches always crumble because of internal conflict. And so I think it's important for us as a church to address this idea really quick because Jesus was concerned about the church, so we'll be concerned about the church. So here's what it says in first, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, one, uh, 10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. 
So, right, so this is what my parents did. They wanted to stay united in their mind and thought because they knew this is where um, the power is going to come, is through the unity in our marriage. This is how we're going to affect our kids. Well, guess what? The same is true with the church. The way that we're going to bring change into the world is not by infighting and having all these discrepancies. The way that it's going to happen is by us being unified in our thoughts and in our heart and our love because the world is full of division. Have you noticed that lately? People seem to be pissed off a lot right? There's racial division, there's political division, there's uh, sexual division, there's gender division. There is division every corner that you turn. And so the thing that's going to make us effective in the world is they're going to look at us and they're going to go, you know, despite all of the things that could divide them, they're united. And they seem to love each other despite whatever disagreements they may have over here or over here. They seem to be unified in their vision and in their love. And that makes them different. And it's that difference, the scripture says, is going to allow us to be able to speak truth into the world. And so really quick, let me give you three causes of division. And again, I'm just speaking as the church because that's who we are. And that, but this applies to marriages. This applies to families. This applies to your careers. First one that brings division into people's lives and into the church is negativity and gossip. See, negativity is the attitude. Gossip is the outpouring of the attitude. All right, so there's a direct connection between what you feel and the attitude that you have and what you say. And so gossip, we all know what that is. It's talking behind someone's back um, when, uh, instead of confronting them, right? Gossip. We've all been gossiped about. We don't have to define gossip. We know what it is. And gossip is a big deal. It's not just a big deal according to the Bible. It's a big deal in the world. So there's this guy, um, Dave Ramsey. He does uh, finances, and you've probably heard him on here. Whoop, okay, all right. <laughs> you like him. Okay, good. Um, Anyway, he does, he does books and stuff. He talks about money. And he had a leadership principle that I've adopted for, uh, for, the, for our, our staff here. Is he says, gossip is not allowed because gossip is the number one destroyer of unity, of staffs. And so his rule is, I will allow you one pass when you gossip. I will give you a warning and say, don't do it again. The second time I catch you gossiping, you're fired. I don't care who you are, how big you are to this organization, you're out of here. I thought, dude, that's serious. You know, you could, you're fired over gossip just because you're chatting in the, the break room? Like, I mean, that, that's, no, because he understood that it will destroy any kind of, uh, any kind of future that they may have. James 1.26 says this. This is gnarly. James, if you've ever read the book of James, you're like, dude, frick. Okay. James 1.26 says this. He says, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. <laughs> okay, okay, so James, uh, look, I'm a religious dude, I go to church, I tithe, I sing worship songs, like I'm in it, you know? And then he says, you know, all of that's worthless if you're out talking trash on people. All of it's worthless. Throw it away. You may as well not come to church because if you're out gossiping, if you can't control your tongue, that's an outpouring of what's happening in here, and so that means nothing good is happening in here, and so all of it's worthless. It's all meaningless actions and rituals that you're doing if you cannot learn to control your tongue. That's gnarly. That's pretty crazy. Like, even if you've been through rooted, it doesn't matter. <laughs> and here's why. In Luke 6, 45, says, Jesus says, A good man brings good things out of, a, out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. See, Jesus says, it's not just the words. Like, the words are not what's happening. It's the heart. Because the words are a reflection. This is a direct, a direct correlation between what you feel in your heart and what you say. And if you are saying these profane things or these gossip, these lies, or 
That's a reflection of what's happening in here. And the result is, let's go back to James. He's gnarly here. He says, he says, the tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one man's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. Read James tonight before you go to bed. Oh my gosh, right? He says, look, here's, it's coming from your, from your heart. It comes out of your mouth. It will set your world on fire. It will destroy people. It can destroy people's lives. It will destroy your life. You better get it under control. And we've seen this, right? You don't have to be a Christian to believe this. How many times have you seen someone's reputation get slandered? You've seen someone's career go up and so I saw a YouTube video this week of people who lost their careers in 30 seconds. And it was all these people on TV saying stupid things. And you're like, no, bummer. You know, it's funny, but you're done. You know, that's it. And it's because this thing can be either the thing that brings life because it's also the thing that proclaims the gospel and hope into people's world, but it's also the thing that brings destruction. It is powerful. And the reason why it has so much power is it's because it speaks from what's actually happening in the heart. And so for some of us, and this is something I have to check myself on all the time is, what have I said and who have I said it about? Because if there is something that I've said in which I wanted to gossip because it made me feel a little bit better, because I had some kind of issue, because I need to go repent. I need to go to the, first to God and say, God, I'm sorry. I have destroyed someone's reputation. I have spoken badly about somebody. I need to repent first to you, and then I need to go to that person. Oh, it's going to be a great conversation. It's going to be fun because you're going to go, hey, you didn't know this, but I've been talking crap on you. Oh, wow, that's going to be a humbling experience. And yet, that's what we're called to do, is we're supposed to go and say, you know what? I slandered you. I gossiped about you. And I just need your forgiveness because I made a mistake. And if they're loving and if they care, they're going to go, you know what? I get it. I get it. Thanks for coming to me. Second thing that destroys churches and organizations and families brings division is pride. Pride is an unhealthy and unrealistically high view of oneself. It's the assumption that I know best or I deserve something. So uh, today at lunch, I had to admit to my dad because I was studying and I knew what this passage is. Here's the hard thing about being a pastor is I have to actually wrestle and deal with the crap that I'm talking about here. And so when I started talking about pride and the, uh, the fact that this idea that I know better, I deserve better, I have to do some self-reflection. And I realized as I was doing this, oh, I have to go ask for forgiveness. Dang it. And I had to do it with my dad. Because I went to my dad today and I said, Dad, I, uh, I for a long time have been spouting out how you should be a pastor and how you should run a church and how you should do X, Y, and Z and things like that. And, and you know what that was? That was pride. And I've actually come to realize that you were right and I was wrong. Oh, I hate that. And uh, my bad. I messed up. You know better than I do. For some reason, I thought that I had this all figured out, and you know what? I didn't have it all figured out. My bad. See, because pride is this idea that I know something, I know best. I know best about the given circumstances or about the situation or whatever, but the scripture says, no, 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 you need to approach this in humility. Not what do I know or why, why am I right or, no, 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 no. It's to assume the best of somebody else. It's to say, you know, in humility, I'm not going to think of myself in this situation. I'm going to think best of you. And if there is some conflict, which we'll talk about in a minute, I'm going to resolve that. But pride is puffing oneself up. Humility is submission. I deserve better. I, uh, I can throw an incredible party. It's called the Cody Pity Party. And um, I throw them on a pretty consistent basis. I'm the only one invited. Uh, 
Sometimes I'll invite a couple double-doubles to help <laughs> ease the pain. And uh, most of my pity parties, all of my pity parties are because I believe that I deserve something and it didn't happen. I deserved more respect or I deserved more gratitude or more appreciation or whatever. And then when I start feeling like that, I hear the voice of my parents and they said, Cody, if you are in this deal, meaning serving God, for the appreciation and admiration from other people, you are going to be very disappointed and will not last very long because it's never coming. The only audience that you need to be concerned about is God. As long as you're doing for him and he knows, then you don't ever have to get any kind of, uh, any kind of acclaim or any kind of praise. It will be enough to know that God sees you. That's it. That's the reward. And so some of us, we struggle with this idea, well, you know, I don't think they, they care for me and I don't think that they love me. They don't appreciate how hard I work. And but Yeah, that, you know, people are falling, people mess up and we should be thankful for those around us. But we are supposed to be unoffendable for the cause of Christ. Meaning when we go out and we serve God, it doesn't matter if anyone in the world recognizes what we've done because that's not why we do it. Doyle last week talked about we need to have a heart like a dove and skin like a rhino, meaning we are going to continue to care and invest in people. And even when they shoot at us afterward or they don't say thank you, we're going to go, that's okay. Because it's okay. I already know who I'm here for. I already know who I'm here to please. And he sees me. He sees what I've done. And if anybody else sees it, great. But if not, that's okay too. The last thing that causes, or the, the, I think that one of the top three things that causes division is unaddressed or unresolved conflict. And again, this is so applicable to our lives, to our relationships, but I'm just using it for church today. Unresolved conflict or unaddressed conflict is uh, we are very messed up people. All of us in this room, welcome. We are, whoa, we're screwed up, okay? The more you get to know us, the more you're going to realize they are an absolute mess, and we are open about it. And so we expect there to be conflict. We will have conflict, conflict in life. But here's the thing is, uh, okay, I'll get personal. I didn't uh, clear this with Amy, but I will um, do it anyway. Is uh, when Amy and I first started dating, she came from a background in which uh, her family never had conflict. Everything was always good and we're always cool and everything's great and we don't want to have any issues like that because we don't want to be mad at each other. And I came from literally the exact opposite where we will fight about anything. We will fight about fighting. Today, we were sitting out in the parking lot. There was three cars lined up together, all of us with our windows rolled down. And one of the staff members uh, drove by and goes, can you guys just decide where to go to lunch and stop fighting? And we're like, yeah, that's right. We are fighting right now because this is what we do. We love to fight. Because here's what we've realized. There is such thing as healthy conflict. It can be a great thing for your relationships if done correctly is when you have conflict, it is an opportunity for growth, for personal growth and growth in that relationship. But the problem is most of us are very bad at conflict. We haven't had good examples from our parents. Society is not giving us a great example of it. And so our response is usually pretty unhealthy. What I see most people when they're dealing with some kind of conflict is they either ignore it, they're passive aggressive about it, or they get angry and bitter and then blow up on somebody. Those are not healthy ways to deal with conflict. See, I can... Um, I can tell oftentimes when there's conflict, and this is true in the office, is I'll walk by somebody and I can kind of tell there's, some, there's distance, there's something between us. And very rarely will they address me and go, hey, um, I noticed that there's something going on. Because most of us have not had good training in conflict. And so I'll go, hey, what's up? I can tell there's something going on. And I try to open the door for them to go, okay, God, tell me what's up. Tell me, let's resolve this because what grows in the dark? Nothing good. So we want to expose it. Let's get it out there. Let's wrestle with it because our relationship is going to grow. 
And we're both going to learn something out of this. But if we ignore it and pretend like it's going to go away, one of us is going to be bitter. There's still going to be some distance between us. And we're called, as Christians, to do really tough stuff. Right? Following Jesus is not easy. And so everything he says for us to do along the way is not easy either. And that means conflict as well. The easiest thing to do in the short run is to ignore it or be passive-aggressive about it. But the hardest thing to do, but the most healthy thing to do in the long run, is to go in truth and love and address it. Say, hey, you know what? Maybe it's a misunderstanding. Maybe I'm not getting this. Or I was really hurt when you said this. Or I was offended when you did this. And here's the deal. It's not your responsibility to make them apologize. It's not. It's not your See, your, your responsibility is to get it out in the open and then to clear your conscience so that you know you've done what you were supposed to do. You did your part. You do your part. You can't control other people. You can't control if they're going to change, if they're going to apologize, if they're going to agree. Your job is to expose whatever it is and then go, okay, I've done what I was supposed to do in truth and in love. So real quick, how do we create unity among the church? If those are the things that destroy uh, families and marriages and the church, how do we create unity? First thing is this, is be committed. Is realize one day, or if you are married, that there is no perfect spouse, because if there were, they wouldn't marry you. There is no, <laughs> no perfect kids, right? There's no perfect job. There's no perfect church. You eventually come to the realization that you are going to, with discernment and prayer, you're going to pick one and stick with it. That's it, right? You're going to one day, you're going to pray about it, and you're going to decide, I think this is the one, and then you are going to marry them, and then from then on out, that's it. We're going to wrestle through and figure this out. Divorce is not an option. We're not going to break up. We have committed to one another, and we're going to, we're going to figure out how to make this happen. It can be ugly. We may have some super fun fights along the way, but we are going to figure this out. Because here's the pattern that I see in a lot of people, is they will find the next fix, the next exciting thing, the next person, and they set a pattern in their life. They never actually dig their heels in and say, all right, I'm going to figure out how to make this work. See, this happens in marriages all the time. I see people jump from marriage to marriage to marriage because this one, it's not fun anymore. The honeymoon's over. I'm not enjoying myself. I, they, they phrase it like, I'm not in love. We fell out of love. B.S., Right? Or, uh, you know, I need to go and um, I need to find a new church because this one's not meeting my needs anymore. I'm not being, and I love this, fed here. And I just want to go, oh, that's really disappointing. Not for us, for you. Because you're setting a pattern where you're going to run to the next best thing every time. But here's what, and this is an incredible gift that my, uh, that my grandma has given me. She's 85 years old, and she has been at the same church for 50 years. And can you imagine the types of changes that happen in 50 years at a church? It has been different pastors. It has been different locations. It has been different people. And right now, this is hilarious, is there's a young pastor in there who is trying to bring in young families. And so she is 85 years old, and there is smoke, and there is lasers, and there is loud music. And she's just like, oh, here I am. You know, I'm, here I guess so, you know. Like, she just turns her hearing it off. It's like, oh, whatever, you know, like. It's great. I love it. And she hates that stuff. She hates it. She's like, are you kidding me? Like, this is horrible. But she goes, I'm committed. I'm here. Because this is how you actually live a life of purpose and meaning is through consistency, not chasing something. I just want to shake people and go, stop chasing something. You'll never find it. It's not there. You just have to dig your heels in, be consistent, and work through it. That's how your marriage is going to work. That's how church is going to work. That's how your kids, every part of your life is going to be about consistency and just showing up. 
even if it's not fun, even if you don't like it, because that's where real growth and change happens. Second thing is this, is keep pure. Is uh, My dad has always taught me that, and he talked about this last week, is keep the core pure. Keep your, your core pure, and that making sure that when you stand face to face with God, you are blameless in his eyes. Whatever kind of uh, division is happening in your family or in the church or at your company, your job is to stay blameless, is not to go and to cause more disunity or more division. Your job is to try to be someone who reconciles, because what did Jesus do? He came to reconcile sinners to God. We are supposed to be people of reconciliation. And then finally, and this is one that um, is not very popular within our culture, is submitting to authority. Um, if you know uh, Moy, who is on staff here, he leads worship, and he also is a pastor of a church up in, uh, up in um, what's that, Wilmington, thank you. Um, I could drive you there, I just can't tell you what city he's in. Uh, I love his attitude, because he comes from a very different cultural background than I do, and his is one of uh, authority. And so he is always talking about spiritual authority and submitting to spiritual authority, which is something we have lost in our culture. Because we are very much a culture about autonomy and independence, and you can't tell me what to do. And, but here's the way that God works, is God has placed authorities over each one of our lives, over mine and over yours, different authorities. And the reason why he has placed them is because he is going to work through them. God works through authorities in order to teach us things, things that we may not even see or understand. And our job is to submit to those authorities even when it doesn't make sense. Now, of course, if there's something immoral or unbiblical, we are supposed to, we're no longer supposed to submit, but if we just don't understand, that, that doesn't matter. We're supposed to submit to the authorities that God has placed over our lives. And so some people have this idea that, okay, yeah, I'll submit to the authorities when I agree with them. Okay, well, then that's not an authority anymore, right? That's just a buddy. That's just a friend. You know, when they tell you something, you don't like it, then you don't do it. That's, no, authority is submitting even when you don't want to or it doesn't make any sense. It's something you have to do, it's something I have to do, and it's how God uh, works. Okay, let's, let's finish up this uh, passage. Verse 28, but uh, if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So what Jesus says here is he says, look, it's clear that I have power. It's clear that I can do miracles, and so you have to decide. By whose power did I do these miracles? Is it through Satan or is it through God? And he, 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 he forces everybody to make a decision about him. Every passage I read in the Bible, Jesus is always putting people into decision-making mode. Like, okay, who is Jesus? And so the Pharisees are going to say, well, he's evil. The power that he has is from Satan. Other people are going to say, no, no, I don't think he's evil, but like maybe he's a fraud, a trickster. Maybe he does like magic or something like that. I, I'm not sure, but he's not evil, but I don't, want to, I don't want to commit to God. And so I'm going to try to find them in between. And then there's those who say, no, no, no. I think he really is who he claimed to be. I think he really is the son of God. And so that's a decision that all of us have to wrestle with and have to decide. Who do we believe that Jesus is? He's always asking us, who do you think that I am? You've seen my power. No one was denying that Jesus did miracles. Not even his enemies were denying it. It's just by whose power was he doing it? And he finishes with verse 29. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man then he can plunder his house. Now this on the face makes absolutely no sense. You're like, Jesus, you're going off on a tangent right now. But here's what he's saying. The strong man that he's referring to here is Satan. And he is saying, I, Jesus, tie up Satan and I am taking his stuff right now. So the stuff that he's referring to is you and I. 
See, the scripture says that we are slaves to sin, that we, have, we are naturally in rebellion against God, and then we can do nothing to get away from it, that we are Satan's hostages, that he has us, and yet Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has come to set the captives free. And so he says, I have bound up Satan so that I could free the captives, you and I. Now, I don't know if you're into um, movies or whatever, but one of the common themes that you're going to see in movies, especially fairy tales, and I'm into this because my kids are that age, and so we're constantly watching this stuff, is there's always a common thread. And the common thread, especially in fairy tales, is there is a hero who's going to save the damsel in distress. And you know why we like that story? Because there's something intuitive. There's something about it that we can relate to because we know that we need a hero and that we need saving. But because of our own pride and arrogance, we think in all the movies that we're the hero, right? Whenever we think about ourselves in a movie, we are never the one that needs saving. We are always the one that is saving the damsel in distress. And yet the scripture says, no, 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 no. The reason why you love those stories is because you know in your heart that this fairy tale has to be true. And yet you continue to believe that you are the hero of the story and you're not. You are the one that needs saving, I love talking to people who are in recovery because they know that they were powerless. They know that they need saving. Once they've started to go through the process of recovery, they realize, oh my goodness, I can't do this. I have to submit my will to something greater, to God. And so here's my last illustration I want to end with is we hate the idea that we are not the hero. And we hate this idea that we are not going to save ourselves but here's the truth of the gospel, is that we are both the villain and the victim. We are both the one that needs saving, and we are the one that is perpetrating the evil. And so here's the example that I'll give for this, and I'll end with this. I, uh, 10 years ago, had the opportunity to go, and if you guys remember the whole Joseph Coney thing that was happening in Africa, and the child soldiers, and all that kind of stuff, well, I got to go while that was taking place. And it was crazy. There's a whole background story about it. But I realized as I was sitting down with these kids, these kids were taken from their parents in the middle of the night and they were turned into either um, prostitutes um, or for the women or uh, uh, child soldiers for the boys. And they were made to murder their own parents and their own families in gruesome ways. And it was disgusting. And we had some people who were out there and they're trying to rescue these kids. And they had the, the strangest um, problem. It was, it, it was weird because what they had to do is they had to go and fight the people that they were trying to save. See, they would fight these children who were the soldiers and they were actually the people they're trying. So they're, they're shooting at the people that they're trying to rescue. In that moment, I went, that's the gospel message is these people are the villains and the victims. They've been taken from their families and yet they are also the ones perpetrating evil. Is that not us or what? We are the villains and the victims. And so Jesus says in this passage, I have come, even though you are the villains, I have come to set you free. And so you get to decide, which will you stay? Will you stay the villain or will you say, I am the victim and I need saving? But everybody at the end has to decide, will I continue to be the villain or will I submit and say, I actually need your help? Let's pray. Lord God, we, uh, we come here and we just, we humbly submit ourselves to you, Lord God. I oftentimes think that I am the, the point, that I am the hero, that the story is about me, and I have to remember that I am not the hero, I am the villain, and that I am also the one that is in need of saving, Lord God, that I need your grace in my life, that without you I can do nothing, nothing of purpose or, or meaning, nothing of significance, actually nothing even good. 
And so, Lord God, we come and we want to be unified as a church. Uh, we want to come together and we want to be able to show the world what it looks like to, even though we may have agreements and disagreements and we may not be all on the same page and everything in life, and that's okay because we can love each other anyway because we have the number one thing in common, which is we come and we worship you. And so, Lord God, let us walk out in love, love for one another, love for you, and love for the people in this community. Lord, we thank you. In the name we pray. Amen.